And let's not waste any time. I'd like for you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. If you don't want to read this as I go along, fine. Just let it soak in. Philippians chapter 3, 12, 12th verse. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Now get this. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, their mind is on earthly things. Think about that. He's writing to the church, and he said, many of you are enemies of the cross of Christ. We do have enemies within the church. We do have people that are there every Lord's Day, perhaps, who are enemies of the cross. By criticism, they try to destroy the unity of the church. They don't live like they should. They never witness. And what witness they do have is wrong. So check yourself on this. Are you an enemy of the cross of Christ? Let me pray and we'll get right into this. Father, I pray again that everybody here will get something good for their souls. And uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit will work through this preaching and the scripture that we read. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you that are older may be familiar with the name Webb Garrison. Webb Garrison lived in Evansville for a long time. He was minister of a denominational church there. But more notably, he wrote a syndicated newspaper article every day, five days a week. And it was published in most Midwest papers. In fact, when I moved to California... I was happy to see that it was published even in the California papers. But one time I was making a hospital call in Evansville. And as I drove out, I stopped at a Bible bookstore. I walked in, and right in front was a big display of a new book by Webb Garrison. I bought it without even looking inside it. I got home, I read the title. It was entitled, uh, Why You Say That? And as I thumbed through it, I saw that it was a book that explained the meaning of certain slang terms in our English language and how we started using them. So I put that book up on that shelf that was loaded with other books that I intend to read in the future. 
and uh, I sort of forgot about it. But about that time, one of my sons came home from school. I believe he was in the second grade, and he had learned a new slang term. Some of them I would not tell you about, but this one I can tell you about. He had just picked up on the term double cross, or as he put it, everybody was a double crosser. His teacher was a dirty double crosser. His friends that he ran around with, they were dirty double crossers. I sat there and listened to that all through the lunch hour, and I thought, well, this kid's a lot like his mom. If I challenge him on that, he'll probably just continue to use it, so maybe he'll forget it, and that proved to be right. But after he went back to school, I remember thinking, I wonder if the term double cross is in that book. And I took the book down, and to my amazement, it was not only in the book, it comes from a Christian background. You see, it happened like this. Back in the days that we call the Dark Ages, the Bible was withheld from the people by the authority of the church. And not having a Bible to read, the people who went to church had a lot of superstition mixed up with their Christianity. Now, one of the superstitions was this, that if they could obtain certain religious relics, the ownership of those things would practically grant them a safe trip to heaven. And so all over the world, monasteries and rich men and even peasants gave large sums of money to obtain certain religious keepsakes. You know, a lock of hair from one of the early church martyrs, uh, a robe worn by one of the early church fathers, all kinds of things. Pieces of wood that were said to have come from the cross of Jesus were highly prized. Well, in such a religious environment, everything was wide open for the con man, the hustlers, the scam artist, and they were getting rich off of it. They counterfeited these things. And one of the easiest things to counterfeit was a piece of the cross. Any old piece of wood would do, you know. And uh, peasant people saved and sacrificed to buy these little pieces of wood that were called pieces of the cross. Well, there began to be a ter new terminology among thieves. If you really took somebody you were said to have given them the cross, coming from this idea of counterfeit pieces. And then, if one thief took another thief, this practice of the cheater cheating the cheater was called the double cross. This got so bad that the early church in power actually handed down a law forbidding people to buy pieces of the cross. But in spite of that, the trade flourished, the double cross. Now, to us today, anybody that double crosses something is a traitor. They go back on their, their beliefs. Uh, they cannot be trusted. They are people that are disloyal. And so the apostle wrote to the church, and he said there are enemies of the cross. And they were double-crossing the cross. 
And I want you to question yourself this morning. Could I be double-crossing the cross of Christ? Am I an enemy of the cross of Christ? And I'm going to give you three ways in which it often happens. I'll give you the three ways, and then I'll go back and preach on them. Number one, we are enemies of the cross because of a lack of discipline. Number two, we become enemies of the cross because of a lack of a denial. And we become enemies of the cross because of a lack of decision. Let's see how we become enemies of the cross because of a lack of discipline. We go back to that passage of scripture that I read. And the apostle said in verse 17, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. The apostle Paul wasn't the kind of guy that stood up and whined and said, Now don't do as I do, do as I say. Paul said, You do as I do. I've given you a pattern to live by. You do as I do. In fact, he spoke of the need of discipline many times, but one of the best illustrations of it is an illustration out of the athlete, the athletics. Paul was interested in athletics, no doubt about it. If he was alive today, I'm sure he'd be a Cardinal fan, but he was always interested in athletics. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting with verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says there's a prize to be won. We're not shadow boxing, he said. It's a real battle. He said there's a marked course. There's a prize at the end of it. Get in the race. And so as he talks about discipline, there are three things that you as a Christian must discipline yourself to. Number one, you need to discipline yourself to the gospel of Christ. The word gospel means glad tidings. In our vernacular today, it would be good news. The gospel is the good news. The power of many pagan religions is in the amount of memory work that they require. Um, get this, a missionary told not long ago about standing with a bunch of Buddhists who started quoting from their so-called sacred writings, and he said, to his knowledge, 21 hours later, they were still quoting, and they had not really um, said anything over. It was all new out of their writings. They knew that much about what they claimed to believe in. You could not teach in a Mohammedan mosque unless you had memorized a great deal of the Koran. And it is at least as much as our New Testament. The power of many religions that are wrong. 
is in their memory work. And yet, uh, I used to preach a lot of revivals, you know, and every night after the revival service, we'd be hosted by a Sunday school class in the church. And we'd go in and often they would call the class roll and have people answer with their favorite passage of scripture. Most people quoted John 3.16, but some couldn't even quote that. They'd quote John 11.35, Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible. I want to tell you that is pathetic. You need to know what the Bible teaches. You have Bible classes available to you. You're starting a move on Christian education. You have home Bible studies developing. You have all kinds of opportunities in this church. And I want to tell you that you are a moron, and that's a biblical term. It really is. It means foolish. You are a moron if you let all of these things go by and do not make an effort to know God's word because you, brother and sister, are going to be held accountable. The scripture says you discipline yourself to what the Bible says or you become an enemy of the cross. You're double-crossing the cross. Now, after that sweet approach to you, I'll go on to a second thing that you need to discipline yourself to. You need to discipline yourself to the church. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul is talking to the elders at the church at Ephesus, and he says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The church is blood bought. What is it here for? The word simply means an assembly of people. We assemble together to remember Jesus in the one way he asked us to remember him, the Lord's Supper. We assemble together for fellowship and learning and soul winning and a lot of things. But look at it in this way. Suppose I would go down to a a beach, and I'm getting ready to go swimming. And I look up on the beach, and here is a white boat, and lettered in black letters is the word lifeboat. I could get into that boat, and I could row it out and go swimming from it. It would, it would lend itself to that. I might row that boat over into an island, and we could have a picnic it would lend itself to that. We might just go out and sit in the lake and on the boat and, and sing songs. It would lend itself for that. And while all of that is pretty fair, that is misusing that boat. That boat is there to save lives. And that is its purpose. Now the church is here to save souls and to edify or educate those that are saved. It'll make a good fellowship group and fellowship's a part of it. But that's not all of it. To some people, it kind of becomes their club where they go to. That's misusing it. You have to remember the purpose of the church. Jesus bought the church with blood. He is the head of the church. The church is to be his body 
and use it for evangelism and edification, that is the purpose. Discipline yourself to the church. Did you know that while all over the world the church is growing under persecution, that the members of the church underground church in China today may be as large as the population of the whole United States and they're going to church and their life is in danger. And here in good old United States where we have it easy, the average Christian goes to church 1.4 times a month. He doesn't even average twice a month. That is pathetic. You put the church first. There's a third thing we need to discipline ourselves to. First, the gospel. Second, the church. And third, the Christian life. Paul said, I crucify myself. He says, we are to be living sacrifices. In, in verse 20 of this passage of Scripture that I started reading, that's in Philippians 3, He gets down to the 20th verse and says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, there are signs in the sky before Christ comes again. Tomorrow, oh, just a thought, let's go on. (laughs) Who by the power of that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his heavenly body. I look at all of that and uh, I remember that when he said our citizenship is in heaven, that that word we translate citizenship means colony. And he had a reason for using that word. When the Romans conquered, they established colonies. The leaders of the colonies were men who had served 21 years of service in the Roman army, and they sent them to be leaders of the colonies. They were trusted men. Roman dress was observed in the colonies, Roman style, Roman entertainment. The Roman language was spoken. Everything about those colonies were like a little chunk of Rome brought broken off and transplanted in other parts of the world. And the Apostle Paul says that's what the church is to be like. The church should be like that. A little chunk of heaven transplanted in the middle of a society that's going wrong. So you discipline yourself to the study of God's Word. You discipline yourself to the church And you discipline yourself to trying to live the Christian life. No, we're never perfect. Yes, we are sinners, but we are saved sinners. Yes, we do wrong, but we confess our sins to God. We try to do the right thing. We try to set an example for other people. Okay, we double-cross the cross by a lack of discipline. I have two more main points they are a lot shorter. The second one is we double-cross the cross by a lack of denial. The mark of every great world leader has been honesty. For instance, when Winston Churchill called the young men of the Royal Air Force together in World War II, he didn't promise them anything but, quote, blood, sweat, and tears. 
and they responded. Jesus was honest. Listen to this, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now get this part. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? That is never answered. You can't give anything. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is saying, Learn to say no to yourself. Hey, listen, I was in the military. I know profanity. It still comes to my mind occasionally. But I've learned to say, no, I'm not going to talk that way. You can apply that right down the line to a lot of other things. We are to deny ourselves, and it is self-denial. Let me ask you three questions. Are you parked by the baptistry? You know, we're resurrected from baptism to walk in the newness of life. Maybe we're just parked by the baptistry. No change in our life. Second question. Are you walking with Christ? The Bible says that we are to walk in a newness of life. Are we out there trying to live differently? Third question, are we satisfied with ourselves? If we are, you're really in trouble. You know, that guy that said, well, I think I'm all right, or I'm not a hypocrite, or I don't go to church because of the hypocrites. Boy, he is self-satisfied, and he's going to go to hell if he doesn't watch it. Because we must always remember We are never satisfied with ourselves. We are trying to do better and walk with Christ. Somebody said, the closer you come to the Lord, the more satisfied you are with salvation by grace, but the less satisfied you are in the way you live. And I think that's true. Self-denial in a world that constantly urges us to be comfortable is a new teaching. But Jesus is coming again, and he says, you deny yourself and you live right and do something for me. My friend Reggie Thomas, the evangelist, used to always talk about the guy that loved to go quail hunting. And one bright morning, that guy got up, and boy, it was a good day to go quail hunting, and it was in season. He found his hunting license, shotgun, shells, put on his hunting clothes, sat down on a couch in the living room, loaded the shotgun, sat there and said, now if any quail walk through here, I'll get a few of them. It's about what we do at church, isn't it? We don't go out and witness 
How long has it been since you have invited somebody to go to church with you and articulated the gospel? Anybody can articulate the gospel. You can tell people what Christ and the church mean to you. Anybody can be a witness. Anybody can invite people. How long has it been since you've done that? Would you believe in a in church not far from where I live, I held a seminar on church growth. And I ask every leader in the church, how long has it been since you invited somebody to church or brought somebody with you? I said, let's look at the last five years. Not a one of them had done it. And I said, guys, if you keep on doing what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always got, which in your case is not much. And you've got to judge yourself in these ways because Christ is coming again. So we've covered, we double-cross the cross, we go against its meaning by lack of discipline, by lack of denial, and third of all, by a lack of decision. See, God had to make a decision. God the Father made a decision to send His only begotten Son to pay the price of redemption death on the cross. Jesus had to make a decision to abide by that. They couldn't put him on that cross until he was willing to go. The Bible makes that clear. They could not have touched him until he was willing for it to happen. And then God had to make another decision that those who accept Christ, he would accept. And those that would not accept Christ, he would not accept. Because it says in 1 John 5, and this is the testimony that God has given unto us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Get this. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. You can't misunderstand that. I... uh, like a passage of scripture in the book of Colossians. Um, It's in the first chapter, 19th verse. Speaking of Jesus, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When World War II came to close, I was on the island of Okinawa. The island had been surrendered. It was secured. However, on the south end of that island, there was a group of Japanese soldiers. uh, I've heard it said uh, 1,500 all the way from 1,500 to 2,500. I don't know. But I do know this, they would not believe that peace had been declared. They kept on fighting. Most of them lost their lives. Peace had been made, but they wouldn't believe it. They kept on. You got to believe that when Christ died on the cross, peace was made with God. 
Don't you ever get the idea that you can make peace with God. You can only accept the peace that Jesus made. And when we accept him as Savior, we have accepted that peace. I had a friend by the name of Gilbert Kays when met him when I was a real young preacher. Gilbert Kays was one of those great men that people never heard about. He held revivals in the Ozark Mountains. He went up into North Canada and started churches. He just did great things, but nobody ever heard about it. Not many. But he told this story. One night he was holding a revival in southwest Missouri. It's many years ago. He said suddenly a tall, elderly man stepped out and he said people almost stopped singing the invitation hymn. That old gentleman went down in front. Gilbert Case said he walked up to him and uh, the old gentleman said, I, I want to accept Christ as Savior. I want to be a member of this church, but I'd like to say something. Gilbert allowed him to say something. The old gentleman turned around and he said, I want you to know that when I was a very young man, I had three goals in life. There was a certain girl I wanted to marry. There was a certain lodge I wanted to be a member of. And I wanted to be a Christian and be in good standing with Jesus Christ. He said, because of the life I lived, the girl would not marry me. Because of my bad reputation, the lodge turned me down. But I've come tonight to make Christ my Savior, and I know that you will receive me. And everybody applauded because that guy's name was Cole Younger. Led the Younger Brothers gang, the outlaw gang. Had been in prison. But what a testimony. And he gave his life to Christ. Now, I don't think you're involved in anything like the Younger Brothers. But you need to give your life to Christ. Christ.